In this episode of Vermont Ed Reads, we talk about Troublemakers, a book by Carla Shalaby. We touch on what we're really doing when we ask our students to code switch, Black Lives Matter, and the trouble with classroom norms. And we pose the question, how do school systems bestow unearned privilege on some and unearned hardship on others? Oh, and we talk about Harry Potter, naturally. Anyway, welcome back to Vermont Ed Reads. Let's chat. My pleasure. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Michael Martin. I work as a senior associate for the Roland Foundation, which is a Vermont-based nonprofit. I'm also the director of learning for South Burlington School District. Excellent. Well, um, we go way back, and so I've been really (laughs) looking forward to having this conversation about this book because I know we both loved it. So just introduce us to the structure of Shalaby's book, um, how she uses students' stories to frame her thinking. Well, the thing that really that I love about this book is um, this uh, the thick description, as they say, that's provided through the methodology of portraiture that Shalaby's using. And um, it obviously just immediately draws the reader in. And um, there are just so many passages where, you're, where they're incredibly moved there were a few that I remember that were really painful that were, where there was sort of peer exclusion of some of the students in the story. And I had flashbacks to playgrounds, uh, some of the playgrounds of my youth, and thinking of specific students and wondering they were kind of the black sheep and were um, ostracized by their peers. And feeling like a visceral reaction and um, like blushing and just thinking back and wondering like why why did was it okay for for this person be treated so poorly so yeah it was um it's very it's a really powerful book um everyone that i know has been really moved by it and so at the same time that there's this real um uh this it's really touching it's uh definitely an appeal to empathy um it really brings out compassion i think um when we're thinking of uh, these individual students as people again, instead of as numbers. Um, So there's this incredible human dimension, and at the same time there's a a systems lens that's applied to the book. And of course the the challenge that Shalavi poses to us is to think of troublemakers as our greatest assets in schools, and that's not how we treat them. And to be clear for those of you who haven't read the book, um, Carla Shalavi takes four troublemakers, kids who were identified as troublemakers by their teachers, in really high-performing schools with really high-quality teachers, and she follows them for, I think, a year. Uh, She's in their classrooms observing and taking notes, sort of like an anthropologist, and she gets to know their families. She um, talks to their parents, she goes and visits their homes, and she gets to know them um, in their full lives. I, I love that you drew attention to that because um, one thing that jumped out at me is how we don't tend to think of students as having public and private personae, but that comes through here. Um, and anybody who's ever coached a sport or been a co-curricular advisor knows that students, the way students act in the classroom is obviously very different. And it just makes you realize what a thin slice of human potential, of individuals we're actually encountering on a daily basis in the strict structures of school. Yeah. Um, and that, so that really comes through. So I really appreciated that um, 
her, her talents as a qualitative researcher to go deep and to, to actually find out this family dimension that sheds so much light on these individual students. I think the other interesting thing is that they're all in first or second grade. They're really young, right. uh, and, um, and yet this book is entirely relevant to middle and high school um, situations. And um, having been a K-6 librarian for a number of years, um, you talked a little bit about how this book made you, reading these accounts made you uncomfortable thinking right. of yourself on the playground or in school. Right. And I definitely felt that. Um, but I also felt a little discomfort and, and shame about my own teaching. Mm. There were things I saw that looking through Shalabi's lens, I could see that I was doing harm now. Mm. I didn't think I was doing harm then. And mm. so this book was really um, tender for me. Mm. I, yeah, I really appreciate that you said that. There's actually a passage that, um, if it's okay for me to bring this up, please. On page twelve, um, that one of the teachers is asking students to develop norms in the classroom, and so, you know, at at first glance, you think, oh, this is great. This is like encouraging student voice, and they're going to decide how they're going to conduct themselves within this um, classroom space. And, um, but when we look at some of the norms, I'm on the bottom of page 12 in the book, keep the classroom green and clean, respect other people, respect the materials, share, treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, they're all, they tend to skew towards classroom management <laughs> needs. Right. And the interesting thing here is at this very young age, the students already know what the teacher wants to hear. And so there's, it's very clear that they've been socialized to act a certain way. And that there's actually not room for sort of this human dimension. And so when Zora calls out that comfort somebody be a norm, it's ignored and doesn't get taken up. And, um, and I totally understand that, you know, um, from a teacher perspective, uh, we're thinking about getting through a lesson, we're thinking about scope and sequence. We may not think that comfort somebody is going to be a norm that's going to help us really um, do our jobs, but um, it really highlights the fact that um, sometimes when we think we're incorporating student voice, it's not as authentic as it could be, and also this idea that um, there are many hidden rules that we enlist students um, to sort of co-enforce with us. Yes. There are some powerful passages in the book just about that. And I have to tell you, listeners, that Mike and I could prob would probably re like read half this book to you. It's so quotable, and there's so much power in this very small, um, concise book. Um, so we'll try to limit ourselves, but it's going to be hard. Um, absolutely, I hear you about how um, we talk about using student voice. We solicit it, but we know what we want to hear. Right. And so are we really allowing students to co-create community and to co-create um, sort of a sense of space? Uh, or are we um, give, giving student voice lip service? Right. Well, you mentioned uh, the book Drive, right, by Daniel Pink, which has everything to do with intrinsic motivation. And um, I had the great fortune to be at a session with Grant Wiggins and Angela Duckworth. And um, Grant Wiggins was questioning some of her assumptions around grit. And um, one of the things that, one of the provocative questions that he raised was, whose goals are they? We talk about perseverance towards goals, but to what extent do students, are students able to set their own goals? Or do those goals even have meaning for students? 
And so this question of motivation or what good behavior means is something that, um, that we need to look at with a critical lens. Absolutely. And so I'm going to go, you read something from the beginning, but I'm going to read something from page 151 from her conclusion that I think takes this full circle a little bit and allows us to broaden our lens. Um, If we saw these four children only in school, we might not be able to see them as anything but troublemakers. In school, they are exhausting and tireless, frustrating and challenging. This school identity can seem to be their only identity if we fail to account for who they are in other parts of their lives. Daughters and sons, martial artists and basketball players, poets and artists, experts and natural learners. The voices of the families in this book, mothers describing their precious and fragile babies in utero, recalling their toddlers' earliest triumphs and struggles, flipping through photo albums of their most human memories, paint alternate pictures of their children for us to view with reverence and delight. These alternate images allow us to view children as complex and beautiful human beings rather than caricatures of troublemakers. Their humanness encourages us to try to understand their difficult behavior through a more generous lens, a lens that treats troublemaking as a verb rather than a noun. And I could keep reading because Shalaby's words are so beautiful and so poignant, but she argues um, after this section that troublemakers should be signs that we need to stop trying to fix people and, and to focus on fixing systems. And I want us to put that out there right front and center because I want to be clear that Shalaby's intent isn't to make teachers feel bad for what's happening in classrooms, but thinking about how we're all trapped in a system. What are your thoughts on this as a systemic problem? Well, I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, this idea that school is not culturally neutral is not a new one, but um, I'm a pretty big fan of Pierre Bourdieu. And he, you know, he spoke really eloquently to the idea that school does position itself as the neutral arbiter of merit in our society, but it's not neutral. And so it's really important to see that. And that's something that comes through really clearly in Shalaby's book that, you know, to take the example of Zora, there are a different set of values that most people would think that you would talk to would also think are awesome, like stand up for yourself, express yourself. These are things that we claim to encourage in school, but, um, but it's hard to do, right? It's hard to, to make the, the machine run smoothly. So, um, so the fact that we, we can see this other side to students um, really sheds a light on this um, systemic problem where school has one set of values that tend to be white and upper middle class and that, um, that immediately puts certain, certain students at a disadvantage depending on their home background. So Zora, for example, is um, her mother is Puerto Rican, her father's African American, her mom's like an artist, her father wears like bow ties and loud socks, and they're really exceptional people. Um, and Zora stands out. And in fact, she is outstanding, outstandingly creative and rambunctious. But her teacher is so concerned that she won't fit in. And she says, I don't want her to stand out as a child of color. And yet Zora's whole world is about standing out. She stands out because she's a minority in the school, which is mostly white. Um, But she also stands out because she's she's 
bright and bubbly and, and loud and um, she doesn't conform to gender norms and um, and so um, it's painful for her. School's painful for her. That's such a great point and um, I think you brought this up earlier that you know that it's it's scary to see how quickly and at what an early age these students are labeled as troublemakers and then it becomes a recursive process where they're going to you know lean into that role and um, and you know that I love um, Shalaby's uh, the way she puts it is that you know they'll tend to sing more you know the more that that's uh, repressed by the systems of school um, the more that's repressed, the more there's a tendency to sing more loudly, right? Yeah. So I, I really appreciated that. And it also reminded me of, there's this great essay that I think you read at one point by a French philosopher, contemporary, Michel Onfray. And um, he talks about how our schools look like, look and function like prisons. And how much um, of school is really about controlling your body, not just sort of modes of communication or or different norms about how we communicate, or even power relationships, but literally controlling your body. And so I'm thinking of like crisscross applesauce. <laughs> I'm thinking about how long young students are expected to sit on rugs sometimes, and how little um, opportunity there is for movement breaks sometimes. Um, and the first thing that we do when we see people acting out because they probably needed a movement break or a mindfulness break is to take away the, <laughs> the thing they <laughs> take away most. recess exactly. Yeah. So that that comes up a lot. And um, even when I'm forced to sit in a high school desk, you know, one that has the desk part attached to the chair, yeah. I am so uncomfortable. I think, <laughs> how do kids do this all day? Right. Like, following a student for a day right. is grueling. Right. Everyone that I know who's, uh, I mean, many of whom have like graduated from college. So they've, in other words, they've, they've been able to be successful in, um, you know, in traditional academic settings, find that grueling, find it exhausting to just be subjected to any one of our students daily, daily lives and daily routine. And I think that brings us back to this canary in the coal mine um, idea presented by the author here. Where she's saying, you know, um, so the canary in the coal mine, right, is is going to show when there's, you know, poisonous gas in the mine. It's going to impact the canary before the miner, and so they were used by miners as early, early warning systems for toxicity in the air. And she's saying that our troublemakers serve the same function, and that we should be paying much more attention to them because even if they're the the members of our school community who are suffering the most that toxicity is still there in impacting other students who are not acting out. And so that brings us, again, back to a, a questioning of systems instead of pathologizing. And she actually has a great quote, if we have time. Okay. <laughs> There's a quote. Um, yeah, I'm looking at page... Well, this is in the preface, so it's Roman numeral 19. Um, <laughs> Routinely pathologized through testing, labels, and often hastily prescribed medications, these young people are systematically marginalized and excluded through the use of segregated remediation, detentions, suspensions, and expulsions. The patterns of their experiences, especially those of older children, are well documented in what we now what we know, excuse me, about the school to prison pipeline. 
but this pipeline begins disturbingly early. Children as young as two years old are expelled from their preschools at an alarming rate, a rate, in fact, that is more than three times higher than the national K-12 expulsion rate, disproportionately impacting children of color to a degree that should sound civil rights alarms. According to the most recent data from the U.S. Department of Education, black preschoolers are 3.8 times more likely to be suspended than their white peers. These little ones are deemed problem people before they even begin kindergarten. Oh, that breaks my heart. I think it juxtaposes really nicely with this other quote from the end of the book, um, because I think they're both about uh, exclusion belonging. So I'm going to share this in relation to that, and then we can open up a dialogue about it. By excluding trouble, schools hope to erase it. Schools gain their legitimacy from the appearance of goodness, from the willingness of their students to behave well, to work well, to score well. The hope is to eliminate non-compliance, to make misbehavior disappear, and this requires that problem children themselves be rendered invisible. And this certainly affects those problems, our troublemakers, our problem children, right, that we exclude from the system, but it also means every other kid knows there's a possibility right. that they could be excluded. Right. That that threat is there. And for me, this is about belonging. Um, and I'm reminded really strongly of Parker Palmer, who says, um, people learn best in hospitable spaces. Right. And if you feel like you could be excluded, it's not really that hospitable. Such a great point. And thinking about um, our ability to, to learn, right? Our ability to listen, right, to other people. If we're in fight or flight mode or if we're, you know, in that defensive stance. Um, you know, another thing, another connection that I... Wait, wait, oh, sorry, go ahead. Say more about that because I think that's really important. You're talking mm -hmm. about brain-based learning. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you want to just expand on that a little bit about the fight or flight and how that gets in the way? Well, I think that's been well documented. I think that, um, I mean, whether we're talking about the new brain research where that's so clearly a thing, whether we're thinking about trauma-informed education um, and triggers and, um, yeah, whether we're, we're thinking about how physically constraining school is and what we know about the mind-body relationship. Uh, yeah, I think those are all kind of showing us that our systems aren't healthy and uh, that that's really the source of some of this, um, of, of students reacting against that and acting out. I, I was thinking a lot about um, culturally sustaining pedagogies and culturally responsive pedagogies where you're mm. really recognizing the cultures of um, the students that go there. And um, mm. I know that I have told you that I grew up really working class, working poor, and school, I was really good at school because mm. um, I'm really good at following rules. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I learned really quickly. But school always asked me to make a choice between my family's value system and the school value system. And sometimes that was really painful for me. And sometimes it was in these really obvious ways, like one that I really remember was being in like third grade and winning a coloring contest. Remember coloring contest? And coming home with a lot of anti-smoking paraphernalia. Uh, like posters, t-shirts, all this stuff to a home full of smoke, right? And, and the juxtaposition of that. But other things, like I would have to hide to read. I love to read, but I would have to hide to read. And so it was always asking me to, I loved my family. I was well loved. Mm -hmm. 
but I had to always choose. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like I was betraying my family when I chose school values. Right. And I think our kids face that, and even more painful than that, when they're not good at school or when they can't even make sense of the values. Right. Um, and when their home values, which have value, which are important. These kids in this book are well-loved and well-cared for. And um, Marcus, for example, really values community and looking right. out for each other. Right. And that value, um, he's stymied by that in school. Right. And I think um, I'm glad that you brought up Marcus, too, who's a really endearing um, example in the book um, and just offers so many um, positive, displays so many positive attributes and so much potential and is so clearly, you know, not that's so clearly not being recognized by the school. And it's interesting, actually, from, again, going back to Shalaby's work, it's interesting that that was the only um, student that she was unable to do a home visit with and for. And I think that's a reflection of the mistrust of how African-American families have been treated by many institutions. And so when we think about institutional racism, it's not just the police. We need to be holding a really critical lens up to the implicit biases that are perpetuated in public schools. Because public schools are supposed to be for everybody, but we can see that there are certain values or certain folks' values that are really emphasized at the expense of others. And so that lack of trust on the part of the family, which is clearly a protective urge, um, and I guess you could say is a weak spot, right, in Shalvi's study because she was unable to have that, and she speaks um, really openly about that and is honest, doesn't try to hide that at all, um, I think is really telling. Yeah. It makes me think, too, about uh, so many of the schools that I have worked with have really struggled with um, uh, parental family engagement from uh, students for a certain population of kids, right? And they're always like, I send emails and I um, send home notes and we have parent night and we have parent-teacher conferences, but some families will never come. And I think there's some hidden blind spots that we can't see that um, this is a, a multi-generation problem where, where certain groups of people have felt really alienated from school, where returning to school is really painful and brings back bad memories. And is not a place that where they feel like they have agency, where they feel empowered, where they feel good about themselves. And that trickles down through, through their, their kids and their kids' kids. Totally. And that, I mean, when you think about that, that's also us. So I'm including ourselves in there as, as educators, right? <clears throat> that's yet another way we let ourselves off the hook in the work regarding equity, right? It's like, well, we sent them the memo and they didn't come to parent night. So it's their fault. So now they're at fault. And so again, this is like how we pathologize families and establish and perpetuate certain ideas about, well, these, these folks don't value school. Well, they do, but maybe we need to ask them about how they would like to be engaged in the school instead of some of these traditional channels um, where they may not feel at ease or may not feel like they're being honored. Even though we think of school as, right, the great social ladder, that's how we, that's how we like to think of school. So school is like the key institution in our meritocracy. You know, if you work hard and you're nice to people and you do a good job at school, 
then you'll have a good life, right? And you can, there's a promise of social mobility. It's the American dream. So the relationship between public school and the American dream is very strong, right? And, um, and yet what we see over and over again when, you know, when pre-K <laughs> students are being, you know, expelled, or when we see these four portraits from Shalaby and how much um, these students have sort of already hardened into these self-concepts, um, it's clear that it's a systemic right, approach and that it's not a case-by-case -case or a personality thing. And so in the preface on what is page Roman numeral 22 in the preface, there's this one passage that really stood out to me where she says, she writes, teachers in training learn to punish transgressions because it's not controversial to be castigated if you misbehave. It is your choice and your fault. This logic is deeply embedded in the American psyche, the nation with one of the highest incarceration rates in the world, and it justifies our decision to throw away young lives by making young people think the fault for that exclusion is entirely their own. It seems impossible to blame a caged bird for its own death in a toxic mind, but we nonetheless manage to do so. I love that you're pulling all these quotes from the preface because all of my quotes come from the conclusion and they're like bookends. So I'm going to share one from uh, page 153 that, um, that bookends what you just said. School is generally understood to deliver instructional content to children, arming them with the knowledge and competencies required for a future in the job market. Teachers often believe this work is neutral, shaped by objective standards rather than subjective values. But schools make people. In the everyday work of classrooms, social identities are fomented and cemented in the minds and bodies of young people. I'm just going to pause to say that the idea that a preschooler could think they are bad before they are age five breaks my heart. I love that quote for a bunch of reasons. Um, something I think about a lot, actually. Um, when we're thinking about school and its formal curriculum and standards and mission statements, a lot of our mission statements really speak to citizen making, right? And how school is not just training or memorization of facts or skill acquisition. It's something deeper, you know, the Jeffersonian ideal. And um, so Shallaby really shows that we're not doing a good job on that front. And, um, and we're doing it um, with good intentions, I think. She's really clear that, you know, there are no school administrators and teachers. That there's no malevolence. It's a systemic problem. And so the problem is that we don't have time to be human because we have to get through this scope and sequence, right? And yet, as soon as you look at our, you know, transferable skills or ends policies of different schools or mission statements. They talk about inclusion. They talk about how we treat each other. They talk about um, individuals finding their place in a democratic society. But that's not really what schools do at the end of the day. So it's what we aspire to. But when we look at like what we actually do and how things are structured, it doesn't lead to that. I love that you brought up the transferable skills because I work in middle schools and I hear again and again and again from teachers that students don't know how to be self-directed. Middle school students don't know how to be self-directed. I also hear students don't know how to collaborate. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm often uh, 
struck dumb by that. Like, what do we do, right? Like, how did we get here? How do we, what do we need to do? So we need to teach that. How do we teach that? And this book put that in a different light for me and it made me realize if all we're asking elementary school students to do is follow rules, they'll never learn to be self-directed. If all we're asking them to do is um, conform to behavior expectations, they're not gonna learn to collaborate. They're not gonna learn uh, freedom, as Shallowby calls it. They're not gonna learn independent um, skills. Some of them will, because they're gonna learn it from home or for on the athletic field, um, but not all of them will, right? And they won't necessarily know how to apply it in school if they're never asked to do that. That's such a great point. And I think that Shallowby has a really sympathetic view of teachers who are overwhelmed and experience the frustration because of that inherent contradiction that you just described, right? right? So um, I, I, I think that's really important. The other thing too is um, that, uh, you know, it's kind of the hidden curriculum piece. And so what these students are experiencing is not like, you know, well, this is a, that's an academic thing. It's life, it's their peers, it's whether it's how they see themselves as humans it's whether or not they feel accepted by, um, by different groups. And so we can really see students um, starting to interiorize um, some of these um, forces that are, being, that are acting on them. And, you know, as, as Shelby says, they, when they're kind of acting out, when they're making trouble, they're singing loudly, right? They're resisting um, being um, forced into compliance mode into conforming a certain way into maybe um, rejecting their own home culture and the values of their own family being forced to give them up um, and so when they're acting out they're pushing back against that it's it's like inhumane we don't recognize it as such but a lot of what she's saying is that they're letting us know that this is inhumane exactly that right. these are not conditions in which people thrive right and and situations where preschoolers are being expelled, those are not conditions where humans can thrive, I right. don't think. Um, she talks a lot about, you, you brought up earlier classroom management, um, and she talks about how many books she'd read as a teacher on classroom management, which I found completely charming, because that's a struggle for most new teachers. Um, and she says, it seems like a neutral and harmless phrase, but the management of classrooms requires the management of children which means power over people, control over bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, this brought up for me two things that I've been thinking a lot about uh, in the last year or so. One is consent. Mm -hmm. How do we teach consent if we never ask children for consent, mm -hmm. right? Like we force their bodies to do mm -hmm. things they don't want to do against their will. Mm -hmm. And then also about white supremacy and power mm -hmm. and um, the way in which policing people's bodies mm -hmm. is um is our legacy from mm -hmm. white supremacy from slavery mm -hmm. from um our prison culture mm -hmm. and i wondered if you had any thoughts on either of those things that also that jumped out at me too and um i actually was reminded of tanahasi -Ha coates insistence on the black body as something that is um you know, uh, mistreated, but also there's desire to control the black body, to com commodify it. Um, yeah, so that really jumped out at me, this, this sort of physical control 
Um, and even like there's, I was talking with a colleague this week about a practice that exists in schools, which is called bubbles and tails. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, the way it was explained to me, um, students, you know, moving from point A to point B in the school have to put their hands behind their back. So that's kind of like the tail and they have to puff out their cheeks as if they were holding their breath. That's the bubbles. And so obviously if you're puffing out your cheeks and holding the air and you can't talk, so it ensures silence. And the hands behind the back means you can't get in trouble with your hands, but obviously it looks a lot as if, um, you know, if you were to march, people were handcuffed down the hall. And, you know, you talk about school to prison pipeline, there was just, I mean, that's just this one point and example that reminded me once again of this book. Yeah, that is astonishing to me. I just mm. think, I mean, we rely, we depend so much on silence in schools or quiet. Right. I was recently in a school working on a battle physics project and um, the teacher uh, stepped out to saw some wood and I was in this classroom with these kids and it was loud. And I was a little like frazzled, right? Like, is it okay that it's this loud? The doors, I made sure the door was closed and it was really loud. And so I was like, okay, take a deep breath, look around. Every single student was engaged. Every single student was on task, engaged, productive. And I was like, what's your problem, Jeannie Phillips? They're just loud. Who cares? They're learning. Who cares? And I had to really, as a, you know, I'm not a shh librarian, but, uh, you know, I like a certain volume. Uh, And eventually I did make a joke like, hey, you know what, guys? If we lowered our, if we all lowered our voices... Like we'd all be better able to hear each other. And they kind of laughed and went along with it, but it's really my problem, not their problem. <laughs> right. And that leads me to this idea of um, do what I say, not right. what I do. Right. Um, because we don't behave the way we expect our children to behave in schools. And also kids are picking up on all this power right. and control. And Shalabi goes into it a great deal. Like for example, Zora, is really good at calling out other kids' bad behavior right. because she's learned it so well by having right. her behavior called out all the time. Right. And of course, we hate when students do that. Right. <laughs> right? But Zora's learning right. it from the source. She's learning right. it from the teacher. Right. And that brings me back to consent right. and uh, our large, our, and citizenship and how mm-hmm. we are in the world. Mm-hmm. We're learning to exert our power over each other. Right even as what we really want in society is for us to have power over ourselves and to respect other people's um, power they have over their own bodies. Right. There's one part where Zora's teacher, um, I think it's Ms. Beverly, is um, so being, being interviewed by Carla Shalaby and she's talking about um, implicit bias in the school environment and in her curriculum. And she's so she's responding to questions about that. And she's saying, well, it sort of makes sense because we're preparing students to be successful in a white dominated marketplace. And, you know, these white upper middle class values are the ones that are dominant in social settings and um, in places of power, right, where people of power gather. And so that was I thought that was a really interesting dilemma that the teacher raised. And I was wondering if you had any idea or your own reactions to that, this idea that, that um, sure, maybe the culture skews a certain way, but we're actually doing students a favor by preparing them to code switch 
and navigate um, the way people of power talk and act. One thing I would say is I'm not sure we are preparing students well. Like when you listen to people talk about um, how students are arriving at college or into the workforce, what we're hearing is that students aren't prepared for the kind of work mm -hmm. that's out there. You know, we don't celebrate people who like play by the rules and right. know how to follow rules. Like when we celebrate like the success of a Steve Jobs, right. it's because he broke a lot of rules, right? right? Um, when we, we really value in our society right now, the thing that's really hot is creativity. Right. And um, you gotta break a lot of rules to be creative. Right. And um, so I'm not sure that we are doing a service to our students by preparing them in this way. The other thing I thought about was um, Paris and Aleem, who've done a lot of work on culturally responsive pedagogies. And I was thinking about something, I think that they quoted about um, Barack Obama, that a good deal of his success politically is because he was able to code switch so well. Mm -hmm. Because he was able to talk to Iowa farmers, mm -hmm. right? He was able to talk to African American African American city dealers, say, mm -hmm. or um, he was able to talk in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. And we don't actually teach kids to code switch. We really teach them that the way they talk at home is not okay. And I am a person like that. Mm -hmm. The way my family talks is not the way I talk. And um, and I can't code switch. Like mm. I can't talk like my family talks because I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm. Right, mm. and so that that didn't work for me. Mm. And um, and I've had to unlearn my bias towards um, mm -hmm. uh, not correct syntax and grammar, mm -hmm. and and see that there's intelligence in the way they talk to. Mm. Right, and so I'm not sure that. Um, that Zora learns to code switch because she's mm -hmm. in Miss Beverly's classroom. Mm -hmm. I think Zora learns to not like certain parts of herself, to not value certain parts of herself. Right. And Marcus especially right. learns to not value or, right. or like certain parts of himself. Just to keep going with that idea, if, um, if we were to actually teach students like, okay, this is how you navigate, you know, Wall Street, or, you know, when you go to college, there's going to be this dominant culture that's going to be pervasive, and this is how you deal with that. I think you're right. I think it would look very different, right, if we were to actually teach students how to code switch or navigate situations culturally instead of actually punishing them each time that their home culture was at odds with the school culture, right? That, that would play out very differently. Sometimes the rationale for not doing more work around building norms or having strong classroom routines that, um, that foster social belonging, that create strong learning communities, are sort of our excuse sometimes, or our reasoning for not having time to do that work is that like we have to get through the curriculum. And um, you know, just to come back to some kind of curriculum things and something that you were asking about earlier with the brain research, you know, in the proficiency movement, the idea is not to look at, you know, what was delivered from curriculum, but what's being learned. And clearly, if your student is in fight or flight mode, if the student has an oppositional identity, right, to the school that they're wrestling with, um, that's going to create enough interference that learning most likely won't happen. So, um, you know, I think more and more we're seeing um, teachers who are exasperated given some of our social challenges, right? Like rising inequality and, and just um, families where, you know, parents are working three jobs, the opiate academic, there are these um, 
societal challenges, right, that we're experiencing, and they're finding that they can't do that traditional approach. Like, it's not just one troublemaker that you have to, you can kind of write off. Now you have like a significant, you know, portion of your class that is not going to be ready to learn. And so do we want to just keep going? I think we're getting to a place now where we can see that we, can, we could never provide enough interventions to make, to address that problem. And so kind of the optimistic thing that I, I you know, the thing where I'm optimistic is I'm seeing out of necessity, teachers and schools turning to, you know, metacognition, incorporating mindfulness, thinking about resiliency, thinking about trauma-informed practices, and also thinking about um, uh, culturally sustaining pedagogy, right, um, in order to make sure that we're not, um, you know, uh, disenfranchising our students. When we think about uh, critical pedagogy, right, just to go back to a code switching example, if we were to actually say, well, what does it look like? What are the, instead of just like, what are the norms that, you know, what are our classroom rules? But to say, well, where do these rules come from? And what are the rules in this setting? And what culture does that reflect? If we were to hold a critical lens up to not just the content in school, but the way we conduct school, these are, now we're back to Dewey and, and education is life itself, right? And that critical lens is what we, we always say like, wow, kids are bad at critical thinking. Well, <laughs> maybe we should hold a critical lens up to um, our practices, our content, whose voices are missing from this story. Um, you know, if we were to do that, uh, I think it would greatly strengthen the way our students think and the way they move through the world. Right, right. What are we spending our time on? If it's covering content, they're not going to be good at critical thinking. So I know this is going to shock you because you've known me for a long time. And I think it's going to surprise you because I'm the big collaborative practices person. I'm a big norms person, but I've gotten really skeptical of norms. Mm. And the reason is that um, norms often sustain privilege, mm -hmm. right? Like they, we make norms. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes a norm will be... Um, We'll talk about norms as a place to keep everybody safe, mm -hmm. but safety itself is a privilege. And mm -hmm. some people move through the world never feeling safe. Mm -hmm. And so it just serves to make um, some people continue to have privilege and other people not. And so I'm thinking about classroom norms that way. Mm -hmm. Who do they privilege? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, who do they? Gorski asked this question that I sit with all the time. Mm -hmm. um, how do systems, how do school systems, bestow unearned privilege on some and unearned hardship on others, I think it is. And that's a powerful question because norms often do that. Right, like I was a kid who could sit still and so that rule or that norm in a classroom, being able to sit still is something I could do. My sister, my son could not. Mm -hmm. So I love that you brought that up. I'd also gently push back on that because I think that you're, because you're such an expert of collaborative practice, you're holding a really um, rigorous um, criteria or evaluation of how equitable those norms are. I'll just share that, you know, kind of going the other way with that idea that um, I found that, that oftentimes, and I think you and I have talked about this, the folks that hate 
uh, following the protocol the most are, you know, uh, white males <laughs> or um, folks who, who are, you know, um, in a position of power or are able to derail meetings with their privilege, etc. Another thing I think with norms, if we're thinking about wait time sometimes, there's, a, there's an inclusiveness there, right? Where we're giving people who need processing time or code switching time, um, where we're building that into the system, hopefully a little bit. Um, there are norms that I've noticed are, as I've gotten a little more into some of the equity literacy work, definitely some norms that do that are problematic and that do protect the status quo such as well so you know um speak your truth is a great one um and also i i don't think that that always honors the difference between intent and impact right so everybody can just say whatever with no paying no attention to the impact um then that's that's problematic yeah that's just one example Right. Uh, I think that we could meet in the middle and say <laughs> norms are important in a classroom, right. but, but interrogate them. Right. And figure out who right. are they serving, um, are they bestowing privilege on some people who maybe haven't earned it? Are, right. they, are they making trouble for kids who maybe haven't earned that trouble either? Right. And so, um, yeah. If I could just say, too, that just by making norms transparent, we're already holding a critical lens up. So I think that just that in and of itself is has value by saying, okay, here are the norms. And then, then they're up there for us to critically examine. Yeah. So just that, taking that first step is, is already important. Yeah, yeah, uh, I absolutely agree. Because there are so many norms that, we, that are invisible to us that we right. just know to conform to because of our station in life. Right, and I think that's the part that's most, going back to you know the book here, that's what she shows is really pernicious, right? Is that, that there are all these assumptions about how things are supposed to work that are never examined, and then people are victims of these assumptions. Yes, absolutely. So let's do return to the book because it's not all bleak, folks. Shelby <laughs> actually, she does not give answers, and she's right. really clear about that. But she does give, um, uh, she does ask us to think differently in a way that I just, just really, um, just really resonated with me. Um, she asks us to think about how to be love mm. in our classrooms, mm. and it reminded me of a book I adore, On Being, by Krista Tippett. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, On Being is the podcast. The book is called Becoming Wise by mm. Krista Tippett, and um, she describes love as muscular. And she's sort of thinking about love, not a Valentine's love. We are coming up on Valentine's Day here. But uh, love, the way John Lewis describes it, as the heart of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, love as a, a social good. I think one of the reasons that resonates for me is because, truth, truthfully, I showed up to school because I loved my students. And it wasn't, like, okay to say that out loud. Right? Like, you would never tell somebody, I love my students, but I did. And um, I, they still tug at my heart, even though I haven't been uh, out of school in a couple of years. But I run into students, and it warms my heart to see mm -hmm. them. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Mm -hmm. I think most teachers have that experience. And so um, 
Shalaby asks us really to think about being love and to turn toward a loving way in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. And it's not a fix for systems, but she's saying there are systems in place that make it hard for us to do this, but we can, in our classrooms, uh, turn toward a loving way. She asks teachers to discuss the meaning of freedom and the rights and responsibilities of all people. Mm -hmm. And isn't that what we want for citizens? Um, and to present problems of freedom that are common in classroom life and practice, and then ask how we might respond to them. So this is like treating your classroom like a democracy, mm -hmm. taking the time to problem solve together. Mm -hmm. And I think that sounds really onerous at first, but I think kids can get really good at it, mm -hmm. right? And how will they get good at solving those kinds of problems unless they have that opportunity? Right. That's really the way, I really appreciate the way you just put that. It sounds like just reconnecting with our mission statements. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, she goes on to talk about identifying a human need that the behavior may be signaling and decide together on a way you will all try to meet it. And um, I think about my own son was a little bit of a troublemaker. And um, so often I think he used trouble as a way he was bored and it was a way to like feel something right, right? um learning is really emotional learning is social and like we learn best i think when we feel good mm -hmm. or we feel outrage and we mm -hmm. want to do something right and so i think often he got in trouble as a way to alleviate his boredom and to mm. make connection with somebody. Mm. It wasn't positive connection with the teacher, but uh, his, with his peers. Or, and so thinking about what's the need behind the mm. class clown behavior. Mm -hmm. Zora's also a class clown. Right. Feeling something is better than feeling nothing, right? Yeah. Right. So even if it's confrontational, even if it's antagonistic, even if it's um, going to get you in trouble... Right. That's still better than just excruciating boredom and right flatlining. <laughs> yes, yes, it's yeah. a it's a self medication of of yeah. sorts, right? Yeah. So as a somebody who works at a system level, mm. what are you seeing the implications of uh, Shalaby's research and her idea of teaching kids freedom? Well, it just reminds me, right, with um, a number of schools around the state of Vermont raising the Black Lives Matter flag. Um, usually, you know, at the behest of their students, um, it just reminds me, you know, some, some of the conversations I've heard, some of the concerns I've heard are, you know, well, we have to keep politics out of school or, well, that's not really the school's business to talk about matters such as these. And, um, and of course it is. It is our, again, I just, let's go back to our mission statement to talk about like contributing members of a democratic society or, you know, all students will contribute to their local and global communities. And um, all of our mission statements speak to the democratic mission of school. And yet um, our curricula all just speak to like um, skill acquisition and covering facts. Without, quite, without critical examination of whose facts are they, right? Going back to Wiggins' uh, motivation question of whose goals are they that I'm working so hard towards. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic about some of the things that I'm seeing. Some of them are subversive, right? They're, they're pushing back against these systems and, um, and are very messy. And uh, most often they're in pockets. So when we see people really changing, working really hard to get 
to fight the inertia of these school structures in order to bring out student voice and choice and figuring out a way to make sure that we're not losing rigor, but we're actually bringing more rigor to the learning. Um, that makes me really optimistic. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, again, going back to the Dewey quote, it's not preparation for life, it's life itself. Our students, our students of color, are hearing you know, this, um, they're part of this conversation. They experience microaggressions. They have to, they get followed by the store detective when they go into a store. They are going to see their parents pulled over for driving while black. They are going to get the talk for their parents about how to comport themselves in school, with police, in various situations. And so, um, so to pretend that school is just like, well, we don't do those conversations, right, is turning our back um, not just on the democratic mission, but on our students. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes through really uh, loud and clear in the book. I just, I would, I would love to go back to this idea of love uh, and um, an optimistic note. And I would just say that a caveat I think I would put out is that it'd be really easy. I, this book is inspiring. Nobody that I know has read this book and not been uplifted. And at the same time felt like, wow, okay, I'm- Also I'm challenged. Also definitely challenged. But um, I appreciate the fact that you're saying that this is not a pessimistic view, it's a hopeful one. And um, this idea that uh, there is something you can do, and this, this idea, well, the, the, the love construct, <laughs> the love table at the end of the book, really speaks to me to teacher agency. Because we know from very small micro-interventions and very small exchanges that we can have like a disproportionate effect on, on our students that we often don't see for better and for worse. And so I think if, uh, if a teacher were reading this book and saying, yeah, but it's so depressing, or yeah, see, it's a system, there's nothing I can do, I'm just a brick in the wall, a cog in the wheel, whatever, I would say, well, no, um, talk to anybody about how they went into their major, how they became a, an English major or a math major. There was a, somebody who encouraged them at some point. And there was somebody who said, you're good at this. And, or, or whether, whether, you know, regardless of the endeavor, at some point, somebody they respected and admired said, you're good at this, or let me show you how to do this. And as radical an idea as it is to put love <laughs> into the equation, that's exactly what, um, where, you know, um, teachers derive their power from. And so we can study curriculum until the cows come home, but um, kind of like Harry Potter's, you know, <laughs> super mega magic power, <laughs> which, was, which was love, um, same thing for teachers. I think that um, Shalabi really shows that these systems the struggles that these systems provoke um, chew up teachers as much as they do kids. And so we see teachers really struggling with these troublemakers. And as it relates to engagement, um, I think so often the idea for teachers, when we talk to teachers about this sort of thing, teachers are like, well, how can I do like 95 different lesson plans to engage every learner in their many backgrounds? When really the, the solution, simple solution is to ask students yeah. what they need, what they're interested in. Um, and um, when we do that, teachers who have kind of had that breakthrough uh, report really um, 
you know, I'm, I'm huge mind shift. Yeah. What I hear you saying and what I truly believe is that um, a more humane system for students is also more humane for educators. Yes. Thank you. Um, but I want to say a sincere thank you for sitting down and helping me um, think more deeply about um, Shalby's four students and her um, proposition that we be love in our schools mm. and, um, and thinking more deeply about Vermont, the landscape of Vermont education. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, Jean. Such a pleasure. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Mike Martin for appearing on the show and talking with me about Troublemakers. If you're looking for a copy of Troublemakers, check your local library. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at VTEDReads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.